0: Then goeth he, and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. Father, thank you for your word. Give us understanding as we look into it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Just a moment ago, I... Talk to you about context. So, we do need to take just a moment to establish the context of these verses. And I want to take you back to the first part of April, right before Easter. And I spoke to you on the subject that time of what you say is what you are. And those messages were about the heart. Uh, Jesus used a sort of a parable in verses 33 through 37, and he described the heart of the man. And in doing that, he compared our heart to a tree. Now, I'm not going to take time to read those verses again. If you want to uh, peruse those, that's all right. But the gist of those verses is that the actions of a person will reveal what's deep down in his heart. That the things that you do, the things that you say, they're the overflow. What comes out of your mouth is the overflow of what's actually in your heart and in your mind. And a person that doesn't know Christ has an evil heart. His heart hasn't been changed by Christ. And so what will come from that heart are evil deeds. And they certainly won't reflect those things that are of a born-again Christian. Now, on the other hand, a true child of God who has received a new heart... And has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, he will demonstrate that change in his life. He'll live a different type of lifestyle. So he'll show the spirit of Jesus Christ in his life, and like a healthy, good fruit tree, he will bear fruits of the spirit. And that is, in essence, of course, the life of Jesus Christ in him. So he'll he'll live that life of Christ through Christ, and, and that that life will be evident. So if you claim to be a Christian and there really is no evidence of your faith, then you don't have anything to prove it to others. You can't prove it to yourself and certainly you're not going to be able to prove it to God. So Jesus used the parable of a tree to illustrate the wickedness of these people that he was talking to. These were the scribes and the Pharisees. They opposed him and they accused him of being in league with Satan. And that's because their hearts were evil. And so that evil spilled out into their speech. And they said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And you'll find that in verse number 24. So this whole section that we're reading about is about evil in a person's heart. And, and these people, they were not of God. They, they didn't love God. They were self-righteous. And they were really as far from God as you could get. Now, going back to those thoughts that I, that I gave you just before we read the Scripture, there are some people, by their activities, just the evil things that they do, that you think they must have a demon and some of them are terribly wicked. The fruit of their lives is plainly rotten. And so what you want to do is you want to stay away from that kind of person because you don't want to be influenced by what they do. But our text verses today show us a different type of person. And this is one that, that doesn't really appear to have a demon. Everything looks good. Everything is clean. This is a good moral person. He lives a clean life. It appears he has the outward evidence of salvation, but inwardly, he doesn't really have anything. There's no change that's actually taken place, and what appears to be good is actually terribly wrong. Now, the commentator that said that this was an eerie little parable, he had it right because this is another parable when Jesus is speaking of the heart. Only this time he's not talking about a tree, he's comparing it to a house. The house represents the heart, and that person without Christ is inhabited by something. And what Jesus is showing us here is the spiritual house is haunted because there are demons that live there. Now let's take a moment and talk about this. And I want to start off by talking to you about demons, the activity of demons. Jesus says in verse number 43... When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Now that part there is talking about the spirit itself. Then he saith, I will return. The spirit says, I will return unto my house from whence I came out. And when he has come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. I'm not going to spend very much time on this point, but I do want to just give you some information that you need to be aware of that will help us in understanding what this little section is about first thing that we need to know is that demons inhabit non-Christians. A demon has a house and he considers the body of a person who doesn't know Christ to be his house. Now it's important to note here that a demon believes that he has the right to live there. He's the one who owns the house. And in this case, it talks about a demon that decides to leave that house. Doesn't explain to us why he leaves. But he doesn't consider the house is no longer his. He knows he has the right to live in that house. And so when he leaves, he believes he has the right to come back. He does as he pleases. And this is the way that demons work. They, They go wherever they want. Lot's person doesn't have any control over a demon, can't stop a demon from coming in. He can't stop the influence that demons have over him. And I don't want to uh, make it appear that demons are the cause of every evil that we do, because we are well capable of working out the evil in our hearts on our own. We have wicked hearts. They're against God when we don't know Christ. And so we can do that evil. So demons aren't always the cause of it. But what demons do is they accentuate evil. They help to instigate it. And sometimes that is just a terrible evil. Sometimes it's, it's in pe- demons are in people like you think about Charles Manson or some other serial killer, other types of deranged serial killers. Demon possession can actually cause such things as that. Most of the time, when we think of demon possession, we think of what happened in that movie, The Exorcist. That a person gets demon possessed and they start to spew out green vomit. And their head spins around backwards and they levitate in the air, break chains that are trying to hold them down. Or we think of demon possession like the one that's in the book of Mark. And this is where a demon inhabited a man's son. And he drove that boy crazy. This boy would go and he'd jump into the fire. He would burn himself. He would do all kinds of crazy stuff. Or we think about Matthew chapter 8 and the story we have there of the two men that were maniacs that lived in a cemetery and they cut themselves. They were inhabited with thousands of demons. So we have that kind of a picture of demon-possessed people. It's the Halloween type of possession. It's the kind that you would expect to find in a haunted house. And in passing here, I I just might mention this in case we don't don't understand it too well. It's a little bit confusing the way that Jesus states this. Uh, He said the demon walks through dry places and doesn't find rest. Most people believe the dry places there refer to uh, the bad habitation of demons, that they don't look for good places to go. A demon always goes to a bad place. So demons like to be in their house. They, They seek a place to live. They want a body to inhabit. And so thus you find thousands of them that were living in those uh, uh, men in uh, Matthew chapter 8, those demon-possessed men. So a demon doesn't want to be dispossessed. And when a demon is cast out, what he wants to do is to come in. Now, you you may be thinking today as I'm preaching on this, well, Pastor Smith, that's some of the strangest things I've ever heard. You don't normally talk about demon possession, and you sound like some wild, crazy guy out there. I don't want you to misunderstand. Now, I'm not talking about that every lost person in the world has a demon in him, but there are things here that Jesus is trying to explain to us how this thing can work and what we really do need to, w- to watch out for. And the second part is where we're really coming to the heart of the matter of what Jesus is teaching here, and that is demons can appear to be innocuous. Now, if you don't understand the word innocuous, let me give you a vocabulary word today. It simply means that the demon appears to be harmless. So we're talking here about a different type of possession. This is not the scary type of demon, but this is one that seems like he has no intent to hurt. I think that's the type that Jesus is describing here. And so at first, it doesn't appear that there's going to be any harm. In fact, it appears to be quite good. This is what you call the ultra-religious demon. He appears to be righteous when in fact... Or this person appears to be righteous who is inhabited by this type of demon, but he's still demon-possessed. This is a really very deceptive demon because he haunts the house and the person is totally unaware that he's there. Now, I I want you to keep those thoughts in mind because we're going to return to that and make the application a little bit later of the parable to us today. But the next thing that I'd like you to notice is the application to Israel. Because what we have here in the context of when Jesus is speaking, he, he's talking about Israel, and he has a particular point that he wants to make there. Jesus is here talking about the hypocritical religious leaders that outwardly appear to be quite good. In fact, these are folks that appear to be quite moral people. They're committed to their ethical standards. Uh, they're better, we would say, than most people. They 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 revered the commandments of Moses, and they didn't understand the implication of those commandments very well. But they believed in keeping commandments, and and so if you looked at them outwardly, they're the do-gooders. They're the best of the best. Just a few examples of that would be this 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 outward show that they make. You remember when Jesus was watching people come into the temple and the Pharisees were coming in and they would take out their coins and they would throw them with such force into the collection box that the coins would rattle. And so everybody would see that and and they would hear what the Pharisees were doing and they were tithing. And they thought, well, that is really a good thing. There's the story of the Pharisee and the publican in Luke chapter 18. And this is where the Pharisee prayed, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners and unjust adulterers, or even as this publican, that's the tax collector. He said, I fast twice in the week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. Was he telling the truth? Well, I think that he was. He did all of those things. Outwardly, he had a demonstration of a very holy life. And then do you remember the rich young man, the rich young ruler that came to Jesus? And I'm not going to go into all the details there, but he said, I keep the law. And when Jesus mentioned the list of the commandments, when he said, don't commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, don't, or or you should honor your father and your mother. Well, here was a man that claimed he did all of those things. He said, I've kept all those things from my youth up. And in his mind, in the mind of others, he had done the right thing. So we're talking here about very good moral people in a certain sense. But we need to see the part that the demons play in this and how the parable applies to them. And to understand that, to understand how it applies to Israel, we need a short history lesson. Jesus said the demons went out. So here's the meaning for Israel in the context of the passage First of all, the Jews were permanent rejectors of idolatry. At the time that Jesus came, they had rejected all idolatry. In the Old Testament, there was always this penchant of the Jews to be involved with idolatry. You remember when Moses led the children of Israel to the brink of the Promised Land? He said, here's what you need to do. You go in there... And you drive out all of those Canaanites. He said, you destroy them all. Because if you don't, their false gods are going to be a snare to you. And you're going to begin to worship their false gods. And so he said, you need to drive all of them out. And sometimes we get stuck on that. We read what the Bible says about Israel driving these people out of their land, and we think how cruel that Israel was, how cruel that God is, that he says, kill all the people that are in that land. And we get stuck on that part. And what we don't realize is that these people were utterly despicable. They were cruel people. These are people that sacrificed their children to false gods. They were some of the worst immoral people that could be found. They were so perverted, you can't even imagine some of the things that they did. And so God says, when you go, drive them all out. Get rid of them all because they will become a snare to you. You'll start serving their false gods. Well, if you know that history, you know this is exactly what happened. Joshua and the children of Israel did not drive out all the people that were in Canaan. They left some of them there, and it wasn't long long before Israel began to get involved with all of these idolatrous practices of those heathens that were left there. And that plagued Israel for hundreds of years. And so as a result of that idolatry, God allowed them to be chastised by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And make no mistake about this. When you read about uh, the, the Assyrians coming and conquering Israel, and you read about Babylon doing the same to the southern tribes of Judah, this was at the hand of God. God was chastising them. These people were instruments in the hands of God because Israel had disobeyed them. They disobeyed God. And so that's the hand of God acting. And what happened Eventually, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and the city walls of Jerusalem were also destroyed. And then Israel, and most notably the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, were taken into captivity into Babylon. So the people were deported there. But while they were in Babylon, they got right with God. They, God spoke to them again. And God led some of those people back out of Babylon and brought them back to Israel. And they rebuilt the temple and they rebuilt the city walls. And they knew what got them in trouble. It was because of all of that idolatry. And so when they were in Babylon, they wept over the condition of their country and wept over the sins that they had committed against God. And so they confessed those sins and they came back to God and God gave them back the land. And from that point, Israel stopped worshiping false gods. And to this day, still in Israel, you have monotheistic people. They worship one God. In fact, you'd scarcely find a Jew today that is not uh, that, that practice any kinds of polytheism. They don't worship many gods. They have one God that they worship. So what Israel did then was to drive out the idolatry. They drove it out of their house, so to speak. And it was that, that time period after they had driven it out that they did something else. And that was they began to pervert their monotheism. Between the time of the rebuilding of the temple and the time that Jesus appeared on this earth, there had come this sect of Pharisees that had arisen, and that sect was totally just had forgotten the commands of God or the real grace of God. They... they had cold they or they instituted a cold dead formalistic religion in the place of the grace of god they re, they put there the keeping of commandments and that was their way of salvation and so they thought that the better you kept the law the better off you were so if you keep 10 commandments you're good and if you can keep 10 that make you good if you keep a thousand that'll make you so much better and so they just kept adding and adding and adding more laws on top of laws. And they, they kept those laws as best as they could, but they never had a real change of heart towards God. So what they did was to drive out the idolatry, and they replaced it with something that was worse. And so if you look at verse 44, there's the house that is empty, swept, and garnished. That's the house of Israel. They cleaned up the idolatry. But in verse 45, something worse happens to them, something more insidious is put in its place, and that is that horrible system of Pharisaism. And what they did was to reject Christ and to crucify him. Now, there's a second application that can be made concerning Israel, and that is the Jews temporarily received Jesus and John. Now, let me start with John the Baptist. When John the Baptist came, he thundered out the word of God. People came to him, and and they heard him preach, and they were convicted, and they came to him for baptism. He had wide reception when he began to preach. Remember what he says back there in the third chapter when he told them, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? People were listening to that, and people were coming from everywhere to hear what John said. And as you know, it was John that prepared Israel for the coming of Christ. He prepared them for the preaching of Jesus. And when Jesus came, he was enthusiastically received. There he was healing. He was casting out demons. He was was touching people, raising people from the dead, all kinds of miracles that Jesus did. He was healing these people, and they marveled. They marveled at the wisdom of his teaching. So it looked like they're headed in the right direction. But when you come down to the end, how many of those that John baptized were still there? And when you come down to the end, how many of those thousands that were following Jesus were still there following him? These are the same people that readily admitted that anybody that can do these kinds of things must have come from God. But where are they in the end? Well, they hung around for a while, but most of them were in the crowds that demanded Christ's crucifixion. And you know something interesting about that whole thing? Who was it that wanted Jesus dead so badly? Who was it that really wanted him dead? Was it the worst sinners? Was it those tax collectors? Was it the prostitutes? Are they the ones that are demanding that Jesus die? You know who the ones were? The most religious people. The ones that looked good. The most religious people. They're the ones that wanted Jesus crucified so badly. So it looked like these are God's people... They're keepers of commandments, but their hearts aren't changed. Outside, they have religion. Their house has the white picket fence around it. It's landscaped to perfection. Their house is in the best neighborhood. It's painted with the the most attractive colors. But I want you to listen to Jesus' very apropos description of who they truly were. Jesus always told it like it is. He never pulled any punches so turn over a few pages, if you will, to Matthew 23, and we're going to break in here to Jesus' scathing rebuke of the Pharisees. Don't have time to read it all, but we're going to look, a part, look at a part of what he had to say. If you'll look at Matthew 23, in verse number 23, Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin... And have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat, and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye may clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also." Woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Now there you see a Halloween picture. He says to them, "You're like whited sepulchers. You appear outwardly to be beautiful, but you are full of dead men's bones." Now, in those days, the the graves were most of the time above ground, and so what they would do is they would whitewash the cemeteries, whitewash the graves, and make them appear to be beautiful outside. But you know what's on the inside of a grave? There's that rotting corpse. There's the bones. And the Jesus says, this is what you're like. And you know, it's sort of like when you go to the uh, next uh, the end of this month, I suppose, we have Memorial Day, called Decoration Day, and people will go to the cemeteries and put out the flowers. And you pass some of those and you think, whoa, what a beautiful spot this is. Look at all the beautiful flowers that are out there. Well, they are beautiful. But underneath is what? Underneath are decaying corpses, And this is what Jesus says about them. So you see, Jesus here is describing the condition of their hearts. The spiritual house looks clean. Everything looks fine. But their hearts are as black as coal. And so they temporarily received Jesus and John. They got rid of the idolatry also. But in the end, what they did was to bring more wicked spirits than the first and brought them into their house So that Jesus says at the end of verse 45, even shall it be also unto this wicked generation. Now that's the application to Israel. Well, that leads me to a third application or a third point today, and that is how does this apply to us? And now we're going to talk about the acceptance of Christ. Now my third point here is that people can appear to be good and moral and holy. There are people that are model citizens that are in our churches. They clean up every area of their life. They drive out all of the demons, so to speak. They clean up their lives. They sweep out the house. They make it as clean as they possibly can. But that is not the same thing as being a Christian. It's not the same thing as having real hope of eternal life. It's not the same thing as knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. And so basically what we're talking about here is reformation versus transformation. The difference between reformation and transformation. And let me talk to you about the first one, which is reformation. And I'll tell you this, that reformation is dangerous. Reformation looks like a good thing, but it's really the worst danger that a person can find himself in. This is, a, this is a person who is determined to be a good moral person. He insists on morality in others, but his morality is a whitewashed tomb because there's nothing good that's actually happened on the inside. Now, you're not going to hear very many people talking about morality today, at least not until you come to a presidential campaign. And so this year, well, we have an election, and you can be sure that in the next few months... There's going to be a lot of talk about which candidate supports traditional family values, which candidate is the most moral and upstanding. Several years ago, we had a movement in the right wing that was called the moral majority. Preachers were were trying to drive uh, morality into people. They were judging candidates by their personal lives, and they had to hit so high on the scale of morality, and if they didn't, then they weren't going to be recommended. And so churches began to buy into that, that what we needed to do was to help clean up government. And I'm not saying that that government and candidates don't need a little bit of Ajax applied to their consciences, but in the process of trying to impose a standard of morality, the gospel got left behind. And what happened was that churches became more political than they did religious, and they tried to change America by imposing legislation as if changing the laws would cure all of our ills. Well, I'll tell you this. It's not the responsibility of the church to legislate. Now, I do believe that we ought to preach morality. I think we ought to vote with a good conscience. But we're fooling ourselves and we're fooling others by causing them to think that morality is going to make them right with God. Now, let me give you an example of this. Some of the most moral people that you can find on this planet are Mormons these are people with very good family values now in the beginning they kind of got caught with that whole polygamy thing and they had to get rid of that before the end of the uh, 19th century or else they're going to get driven clear out of America but they got that issue straightened out they made their adjustments so they would fit in and they are very moral people they're moral but they don't really know anything about Christ Well, they have the name on the church, but they deny the Christ of the Bible. You see, they're no different than the Pharisees of Jesus' time because if if Jesus were here today, what they would do is they would tout their morality. They would say how moral they are, but they would do the same things that the Pharisees did in denying the deity of Jesus Christ. That's what they do today. Now, I could stand here all day and I could talk to you about the denial of Mormons and other cults concerning the deity of Christ, and I could talk about some of their very aberrant doctrines, but there's no use talking about them when there may be some in our Baptist congregation that are also fooling themselves with a certain morality and they really don't know Christ. You see, there are people that claim Christ and they have their daily devotions, They have family prayer time, they read the Bible, they practice Christianity, and they look like they're very much in step right with everything that Christ taught. Now, these are people that have driven the demon out, and they've swept the house as clean as they can get it. One day they were bad, and the next day they were good. And so what they did was to reform, and their house doesn't appear to be haunted. These are people that got religion. Like it got milk. These are people that got religion. This is what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, the man was a sinner yesterday, and he appears a saint today. Nobody knows how. You talk to him about the work of the Spirit in his soul, convincing of sin, breaking him with the hammer of the law to feel that his righteousness is 99 filthy rags. He does not understand you. The unclean spirit has gone out of the man, and that is all. That's the deception of the demon. He, he leaves the man for a time in that reformation just to set him up for something that's worse. You see, this demon is up to something sinister because he returns and he brings back with him something that's worse, more evil than himself. What he's done is to give a person a false assurance of salvation. Now, the hardest people to reach are people that are sitting in churches that think there's nothing wrong with them. The hardest people to reach are church people that sit in the pew every single week and they're satisfied that they're clean as a whistle. They have all their rules down. They have that list. They believe they're doing fine because they're keeping up their standard. And what they are is modern-day Pharisees. They bound themselves to a standard that they can keep they're impressed by their own standard standard and so are others and so they're contentedly still on their way to hell have you ever thought about that if i were to ask you today can you feel the real moving of the holy spirit in you if i were to ask you have you ever felt so vile and wicked that there was no hope for you have you ever felt that you were broken in your sin Did you become a Christian because you thought that would just be better for you, that you get something out of it if you acted a little bit better? Or did you become a real Christian because you saw how horrible your sins were? You saw that you were headed to hell, and with grief in your heart, you bowed your head and you cried out to God for mercy. How did you get your religion? That's the question, isn't it? How did you get your religion? Did you create that? Or was it God that worked in you? And so when you were reformed and you cleaned up your life, what was the motivation for that? Did the demon come back? And if he did, what did he find? Did he find a house that was empty? Nothing actually there. And so he just comfortably comfortably moved back in and brought with him seven utter buddy, other buddies. So the question is, are you really a Christian or are you a haunted house? Reformation is very dangerous Because it gives you a false sense that everything's just fine. And so you're not going to look for Christ if you don't think that you really need him. Reformation makes you appear to be moral. But that morality is self-generated. And folks, it will not stand the scrutiny of God. Let me finish that up with a final observation today. And that is, we don't want the Reformation. It's transformation that is demanded. The issue is reformation versus transformation. Let me tell you what happens when the evil spirit leaves and then he comes back and he finds the right kind of house. What the spirit will do, this evil spirit will do, he'll come and he'll check the house. And if that house is empty, he has no problem. But if Jesus has moved into that house, the mark of Jesus is going to be on the door. And I probably don't even have to explain to you what that mark is. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. When the demon comes back, if the blood of Jesus Christ is on that door, he's not coming in. Now, Spurgeon described it this way, and I could never quote like Spurgeon, so I'm going to quote from him. But he describes the devil coming to the door of a person that hasn't been transformed. He says, The devil shouts his hello. And there's an echo through every room, but no intruder starts up. Is Christ here? No answer. He goes outside and he looks at the lintel. For Christ's mark is sure to be there if Jesus is within. No mark of the blood on the post. Christ is not here, says he. It's empty. I'll make myself at home. For if Jesus had been there, though he had been hidden in a closet... Yet when he came out, he would claim possession and drive out the traitor and say, Get thee gone. This is no place for thee. I have bought it with my blood, and I mean to possess it forever. See, Spurgeon said, you have a house that's been swept, but sweeping only removes the loose dirt. What you really need is to be washed. Washing is what takes away the filth. Now, folks, that's what you really need. You need to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so what we have to do is we have to stop looking at all the good things that we've done for God. Stop looking at all the good things you think you did for God and start looking at what Christ has done for you. You see, what God did was he sent his own son into the world to die for you because you never could be good enough for him. He doesn't look for your morality. He doesn't look at that. He doesn't care anything at all about your morality. You see, demons can make your house look fine on the outside, but they get hidden in every room of the house. And each time that a gospel message is spoken to you, the gospel tries to penetrate, and in every crevice of your heart, behind every door, there's a demon. And those demons are blocking the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what has to happen is that demon has to be driven out to stay out. And the only way that happens is when you humble yourself before God and you admit that you're no count, you are no good, and you need Christ to save you. You're a vile, wicked sinner. You need Christ. And you see what Jesus is saying here? He's warning people, stay away from the moralist. And I'll get to it in a minute. Morality, there's nothing wrong with morality in itself. But Jesus is saying stay away from the uh, the moralists if morality is the only thing that they have to offer. Because if that's all they have to offer, they'll damn you worse than if you had a hundred idols in your house. At least then you'd have something to show that you'd done something wrong. You could prove to yourself how wrong you were. And so reformation, instead of renewal, instead of transformation, will fool you. And what it will do, will keep you headed for destruction. And this is why Jesus never preached morality. You never find Jesus preaching morality for salvation. And that's because he knew it would do no good. You need salvation and you need transformation. So Jesus never asked anybody to clean up before they come to him. He never asked anybody to do that. He never said for you to turn over a new leaf. And that's because your efforts at sweeping is exactly what he wants you to abandon. And so I ask you again, where did you get your religion? Did it come from you or did it come from God? Did God speak to you through the Holy Spirit? Do you even know what that means? Do you know what it means to have God speak through the Holy Spirit? Well, if you don't know... And what you need to do is confess your sins to Christ and trust him and have your house washed and Christ move in where no demon can ever come again. Now, you see, you might not think your house is haunted. Many people don't because they examine the house and they don't find that the walls are smeared with filth. And they don't find there's dirt and filth down in the carpets. There's not some ghoulish figure that's looking out all of the windows. but Something's far worse. Because what's happened, they become inhabited or haunted by an innocuous demon. And that might be your morality that fools you into thinking that you're fine. But what's going to happen is your house is going to burn to the ground. And you're going to be in it. So you make sure you haven't been duped. God demands transformation. And that only happens when Jesus saves you and changes your heart. And so as we look at this passage, whether Jesus is talking about trees or he's talking about houses or he's talking about the heart, it all amounts to the same thing. What he wants to know, what is in your heart. Now, one last thing before I let you go. The danger of reformation is that you stand more accountable to God. And you know why that's true? It's because you have more information. You, you know now something needs to be different. You know, you know something has to change. Now, the poor old idolater, he just keeps on worshiping his idol. He doesn't know he needs to change. But you know better. You know that you need to be moral. I mean, that's the command from God. You know that you need to be moral. And so the knowledge of that is only con- going to condemn you further if you don't trust Christ. Now, Jesus said about those cities of the Gentiles, he said they're going to fare better in judgment than will the Jews because the Jews had the light. The Jews had the gospel preached to them. The Jews had the kingdom promised to them. The Jews had Jesus Christ right there living among them and they didn't believe. And the same thing is true for people today. You have the gospel preached to you. You have the Bible. You have something you've been told that you ought to believe. And if you don't believe it, then you stand under greater judgment far worse in judgment for you if you sit there and you say oh I'm fine I'm fine because I'm keeping my standard up I'm keeping my rules up and yet you don't really know Christ now I'm going to close with that that's not all that I could say but that's all I've got time to say today folks I hope it's enough that you understand what is it that's really in your heart let's pray Father, we thank you for your word and for this opportunity that we've had to gather here today and preach from this holy word where it tells us what we must do to be saved. And we want to make that so clear to people today that it's not our goodness, it's not the works that we do, it's not the efforts that we have to clean ourselves up and try to go in the right direction. The only one that can make this right is Jesus Christ. And it's only made right by trusting him completely, fully, surrendering everything that we have to him, knowing that we can never help ourselves. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts today. And then that people here that may think they're Christians because they've made a profession of faith at some time or another, and they're just leaning on that, or they're leaning on the moral code that they keep, but they haven't really met you. I just pray, Lord, that you would convict people today and make us understand we must come to you for salvation. Bless our people today. Uh, Give us the Holy Spirit to guide us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.